Hello everyone, thanks for checking out our sermon this week. Uh, just a heads up, we had a few microphone issues going on and there'll be a drastic change in volume around the 15 minute mark, so just be prepared for that. Also, coming out Wednesday, Todd and I will be having our sermon follow-up conversation as we wrap up our series for By Grace, and so we hope you'll be on the lookout for that and we hope that you enjoy it as well. So we're finishing up our series for By Grace today the last week of our four-week series. We're going to jump into our scripture this morning, which is Ephesians chapter 5, starting verse 21. And we're going to read a pretty big text. It's going to be a little lengthy. And I'm actually going to read it from a different translation that will be on the screen. And that's intentional. I want you to be hearing things and seeing them on the screen like, oh, there's a little bit of difference. And we're going to talk about that. And um, I'm so thankful for the response of the podcast we've been doing throughout this series Todd Burford and I have been doing a follow-up each week to the sermon, kind of talking more in depth about Ephesians, because we've journeyed through the entire book over the past four weeks, but we can't cover every line in every sermon. And so we've been you know, following up on the other chapters and the things that we liked and things that we have experienced through the book of Ephesians together. And your response to that has been overwhelming. So thank you for that affirmation. Thank you for checking it out. Um, triple the amount of listeners to anything else we've done. I've been checking out those podcasts. And so I'm, I'm thankful that you see some value in that and that you've enjoyed it. So I appreciate all the feedback we've gotten. So we're gonna read some scripture for a few minutes, all right? So buckle up, because here we go, because it's um, not a scripture I've ever preached about before. And not a scripture I've ever heard anybody preach about before. So here we go. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, be subject to your husbands as you are to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church, the body of which he is the savior. Just as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her in order to make her holy by cleansing her with the washing of water by the word, so as to present the church to himself in splendor, without a spot or wrinkle or anything of the kind. Yes, so that she may be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as they do their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own body, but he nourishes and tenderly cares for it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, and I'm applying it to Christ and the church. Each of you, however, should love his wife as himself, and a wife should respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling and the singleness of your heart as you obey Christ, not only while being watched in order to please them, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. Render service with enthusiasm as to the Lord and not to men and women, knowing that whatever good we do, we will receive the same again from the Lord whether we are slaves or free. And masters, do the same to them. Stop threatening them. For you know that both of you have the same master in heaven, and with him there's no partiality. This is the word of God for the people of God. Together we say, thanks be to God. So this text ends right there at verse nine, and it starts at 521. And normally you don't don't cross over between chapters when you read, right? You might read a chapter and then a chapter. 
Yeah, this text is a unit together. If you, if you remember, Paul and the letter writers of the New Testament, they are just doing that, writing letters. They're not numbering each of their lines. I've never written a letter to somebody and said line one, line two, line three. That would be exhausting. This is something that was added after the fact. And if we look carefully at this unit, it does actually seem to be more cohesive to go from five to six instead of just stopping whenever the chapter ends because these three sections go together as one piece. In this sermon, I cannot give appropriate attention to all of this text, which is why this is the whole reason we actually started the podcast. The follow-up was for this specific sermon um, because there's so much I wanna talk about and so much I'm liable to talk about. And I know that we all wanna get to lunch before everybody else too. And so I wanna be faithful to that and not keep us here until 12 o'clock. I promise I won't keep us here till 12 o'clock. And so for that reason, I'm really gonna focus in on a few different themes, aspects of this text, and Todd and I will kind of dive into it a little bit more. So consider this kind of the beginning of a conversation about a very complicated verses of scripture, group of scripture. So will you pray with me as we begin our sermon this morning? Lord, I thank you for your word. May it always be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. And all God's people said, amen. I've always found psychology to be so interesting and such a fascinating field. In graduate school, I took all my electives in the psychology department at Emory Seminary and at the university in psychology and counseling. Because at Huntington, all I took were religion classes for the most part, except for the other required basic classes. And so when I got to seminary and realized other people had other majors like marketing and business and English, I was like, oh, well, I should probably branch out a little bit. And I've always been fascinated with the world of psychology. And I know not nearly as much as those of you who are licensed professionals as counselors and psychologists. I just find it so fascinating all the ways in which human behavior is so unique. And I know just enough to know how little I know in grand comparison to all that there is to know. There's just so much about us as humans um, that affects the way we behave, that affects the way we speak to one another, that affects the way we live our lives. And the truth about why I'm kind of fascinated with psychology is, is one, and why I took these courses, is one, because I thought, you know, I'm gonna be in ministry. She, my daughter gets bored of my sermons, I'm telling you. It's just part of what it is. For those of you who have children, you understand. After a while of hearing you talk, they're like, I can't hear him talk anymore. So I, I took these courses because I knew that I would be in, in ministry with people, and so understanding a little bit about how we think is important. I also knew I'd do some counseling, some spiritual counseling, some premarital counseling, and so taking these counseling courses were very important. But really, I just love the idea of like studying human behavior, because we're like very interesting people, are we not? We do things that just kind of sometimes defy logic, don't make sense, and um, there's also certain things about our behavior, probably to me the most fascinating, that's universal. There's certain things that every people group throughout time have all done, and it has not necessarily been through the conventional ways of learning. Like no one parachuted in and taught them how to do certain things like everybody else. We just kind of all have a few things in common. In 1991, Donald Brown tried to make a list of what he referred to as human universals, human universal behaviors. Some of them include the development of language, classification of age, metaphors, use of time, laws, property, weapons, tools. These are things that though they have different iterations at different times throughout history, every civilization has had these things. And I find that fascinating that we, we have these connections to others around the world without even knowing them because we've developed very similar behaviors. 
And this obviously is not all of them. There's a huge exhaustive list of these things. And these are just a few of, of the ways in which we are connected and similar. But I highlight these things, begin my sermon here for a couple reasons. Um, the first is, it's important for us to realize um, that I might offend somebody today. I just wanna say that up front. It's never my goal to, I don't come up being like, how many people can I offend today? That's just not who I am. I'll try to be an agreeable person because I like to be liked. Just gonna be honest. I like it that you like me. If you don't like me, I like it when you don't tell me that. But the gospel, the nature of the gospel is countercultural. And so sometimes when we encounter scripture verses that we've read a certain way our whole life and somebody says something else about it, it will be offensive. That does not necessarily mean though that we have to fully buy in and agree. That doesn't necessarily mean that I love you any less if you don't agree with me. And I hope that means you won't love me any less if you don't agree with me. But that's just part of what it is. When we read to the Bible, we come to a very complicated book. It challenges us. Sometimes it offends us. It's written over a 3,000 year period, at least 2,000 years ago. Beginning almost four and a half, you know, 4,500 years ago was about beginning to be written. Think about books that we like encounter nowadays. If something was written 100 years ago, we consider old. The language is old fashioned. Maybe the things don't work anymore. Yet as a people group, we you know, affirm the fact that we believe that there's life-giving words from God in this book. But it takes work to understand it because it was written to a culture very different from our own. They had their own iterations of human universals. The things in which their society considered normal, our society does not. Yet sometimes we're taught to read the Bible and not be sensitive to that fact. Sometimes we miss things that are of contextual importance in scripture because we apply our own worldview onto the worldview of the scripture writers and the authors. So as I introduce certain things, if they rub you the wrong way, I'm sorry that I'm not sorry. <laughs> in that, the song, I'm sorry, I'm not sorry, I'm not sorry. I'm not gonna sing it, I'm not. But here's the thing, I want us to continue the conversation. If you hear something, as we talk about these scripture texts that are different, let it not be the end of our conversation, but the beginning. Engage with each other. Email, text me. Let's hang out, have coffee, and talk about the Bible. The other reason I really wanted to start with this whole idea of human behavior is that I think human universals um, should add one new feature to it. And that's, um, that's whatabouts. I think we have a universal propensity for whatabouts. And whatabouts are essentially a form of deflection that we are all prone to perpetrate, right? Whatabouts are when someone else points out something about our lives that we might know to be true or believe to be true that we are uncomfortable with so we deflect onto something else that might be discomforting to the other individual. Have you ever done that? Have you ever deflected? Have you ever used a what about? Here's a classic example. And I think she left the room so I can totally use it now. Um, when Brianna goes to our snack drawer in our kitchen and says, what? There's a whole bag of Oreos missing that we just got two days ago from the grocery. I respond with, yeah, well, what about the fact you didn't flush the toilet this morning? <laughs> it doesn't matter the fact that, you know, I ate the Oreos, I'm trying to push the, you know, the, the conversation in a very different direction by pointing out something that is obviously detrimental to my well-being by the fact that she didn't flush the toilet, right? And so the fact is, and it remains, that I still did something wrong. I just try to, to think about something else. That's whatabouts, right? Whenever somebody puts something in our worldview that we don't like, and so we just try to forget about it. We don't acknowledge it. We don't bring it about. And just for clarification, like whatabouts is a bad strategy for marriage. Just a heads up, don't do it. Um, but I do think we are prone to do this in a lot of areas of our life. We do it with our faith beliefs all the time. When somebody brings up something to us that we might not know 
someone asks us a question about our faith that, that we haven't studied or learned, it might be easy to deflect it onto something else that they might consider normal that we don't. So what about your crazy belief? You ask me about it, well, what about this thing that you do? What about your sin? Why are you pointing out my sin, right? Have we ever done that with our faith beliefs? We do with the Bible too. I think preachers are, are probably the worst about it because we get to pick our texts that we preach on and oftentimes somebody might be like, hey, so this is in the Bible, um, can you tell me about it? And you're like, well, what about this verse in the Bible? Let me tell you about grace. Let me tell you about you know, all these things. And we've celebrated the grace of God in so many different ways the past three weeks. But this is in Ephesians, the, the scripture we just read is there and it should be talked about. I think we have this you know, propensity with scripture to say, what about? Because it makes us uncomfortable when we don't understand something. With this particular text, some of us are uncomfortable with the patriarchal language that seems to put women in a subordinate role. Some of us are, are children who have problematic relationships with our parents, and so the idea of honoring them is difficult. And likely, and hopefully all of us, are caused pause whenever we hear language that slaves are to remain faithful to their masters. But we're quick to deflect, or what about, when it comes to this text, because we don't really know what to do with it. Not always, or at least not all of it. I think sometimes we, we tend to focus on the first part and leave out the second part, but it is one unit. It's supposed to be read together. If someone says to us, hey, why does your Bible have um, that slaves should be faithful? Sometimes we say, well, what about whenever Paul, you know, he says to Onesimus, that, or he says to Philemon that he should release Onesimus. Like, there's a good thing. So we don't wanna deal with that section. Or what about whenever he says, well, what about when Paul, you know, says so women should submit themselves to their husbands? We say, well, there's times in Acts whenever we affirm the role of women in leadership, and that's why we ordain women in the Methodist church. So what about that text? Or even like, well, what about Leviticus when it says that you can stone a woman for touching her when she is menstruating? Like, you know, at least we're not talking about that. We what about things away because we don't wanna deal with these realities. But just like Oreos and flush in the toilet, whatabouts are not helpful when discussing scripture. So as we continue, as we think about these verses, let me just affirm that if you've ever encountered text in the Bible that you found difficult, that is natural. We didn't live 3,000 years ago. We didn't live 2,000 years ago when a number of these things were written. And so to blindly accept everything just because it's in this book that somebody told us has to be authority of our life might not be that easy for all of us. And sometimes when we try to live out everything literally from this book as if it's a rule book, it creates some problems for our lives. If we follow word for word, literally everything the Bible tells us, um, pretty soon, in no time, we will have committed genocide, sexual assault, adultery, talk to a donkey while trying not to get killed by an invisible angel, and you will throw some babies against the rocks, which is what it says in the Psalms. There are passages in our Bible that, that sometimes we overlook because they just, they're just different. They're strange. In the New Testament, we might fight a multi-headed dragon. We're told to give away all of our possessions. We might be imprisoned and we might even be beheaded if we were to follow the New Testament to the letter, to the T. The Bible has to be considered in community and that's what we're doing together. We offer it up as a way to, how do we talk about this authority, this word of God for our lives in a way that's helpful, in a way that draws us closer to God because we believe in the Bible and we love it. And so it's important for us to talk about it together. And that's why I'm preaching on Ephesians 5, 21, 6 through 9. I don't know what's going on with this microphone. It sounds terrible. Can I borrow somebody else's microphone? I got a handheld. I'm just gonna use this one right here. So that's gonna be distracting the whole time. Like me, like break wall or whatever. Oh, there we go. Way better. All right. Sorry, friends. 
So as we look back at our section, the text we just read, our selection, we can see that this blocks the text, you know, as it brings us into it. This is what is referred to as household codes. And it's almost identical to the household codes in Colossians chapter three. If you read this text and you read Colossians, you'll see, I mean, they're almost the exact same words. However, this was not the only place in the ancient Near East and in the Greco-Roman world we found household codes. Aristotle wrote household codes. Plutarch wrote household codes. Pseudo-Calisthenes, I can't say his name. They all wrote household codes too. And the structure and the feeling of our text is similar to these other household codes, but there's something very unique about it. Our Christian perspective adds a different ethos, a different feel to what these household codes are intending. And they're very different from what the Greco-Roman world was trying to get people to ascribe to, but also from our Jewish ancestors. The household codes that we see throughout Leviticus and other parts of the Old Testament, it has a, a flavor of that, yet the New Testament writer, as Christians as we do, it shifts in a little different direction. And the first thing I want to say about this passage, about these household codes, if we look closely at this passage, the author is trying to add something very distinct, something to the content and the function of this code. And the thing he's adding is value to individuals who are often undervalued. Now, through a 21st century lens, it might not sound that way, but, but just stay with me. In the Greco-Roman world, in the first century, in the second century, and in the Jewish society, women, slaves, and children had no worth because they couldn't provide anything to society. Your worth was determined by what you could contribute. And these three groups of people were often considered drains on resources because children could not own land. They could not do things for others in the same way that an adult could. And then women in, the roles of, in their traditional roles had no place within society in the greater society. Their roles were for bearing children, and that was pretty much it, keeping the house in order. And so for starters, as we look at this section, I think that the author is trying to bring in some new part of the conversation about the value we place on these people's. He starts by saying, Christ gave himself up for the church in order to make her holy by cleansing her with the washing of water by the word so that at the present, as, as to present the church to himself in splendor without a spot or wrinkle or any kind, yes, so that she may be holy and without a blemish. I don't know how much you know about Jewish purity laws, but as I said earlier, if somebody could be stoned, a woman could be stoned if she touched a man or if she went out in public um, while she was menstruating. And that was part of life, that it was her way of, of having to live in society. That they had these rules about what she could and couldn't do. And the Old Testament says, you know, during this time, you, you cannot even like hold your husband's hand. You have to stay away from everybody. And N.T. Wright, you know, he, he reads this Ephesians. He's a commentator. He's a theologian who teaches out at a school in Texas. And he said, um, instead of rejecting the wife at times of technical impurity, which is what is considered, the husband is to cherish and take care of her, to look after her and to let her know at all times she is loved and valued. Essentially, Ephesians is saying, in the work that Christ did for us in dying on the cross and being resurrected from the dead, we no longer have to be subject to the law. And part of that means that women should be valued and loved and cherished and provided for at all times. Not at three weeks out of the month and the other times you just stay away from them, but at all times, if you are married to somebody, love them cherish them, be there for them, hold their hand, stay with them. Likewise, 
Children and slaves are addressed directly as if they are there in the company of everyone else, which would not be often the case. If you had an assembly of of thinkers coming together, of people to discuss philosophy, slaves and children were not invited. But to the assembly, which was the original name of the church, ecclesia means assembly, children and women were encouraged to be present. And so he's speaking directly to them and to those who care for them. He not only says, children obey your parents and slaves obey your masters. He further gives instructions that in his mind would be beneficial for the children and slaves in the way that other household codes do not. Most codes would just say, children obey your parents, slaves obey your masters. But he goes on to tell the fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. And he tells the slaves, the slave owners, stop threatening your slaves with fear. He even makes a really bold claim when he says, you have equal status in the eyes of God. Whereas in society, slaves and their masters obviously did not have the same status. In the eyes of God, there is no partiality. Perhaps he's trying to offer hope to those in bondage. And so the first thing I think that we can see from this text is that there is added value happening on the work of the author. But it's easy for us to then ask, and I think not inappropriate to say, did he go far enough? Did he say enough? Did he, did he tell all the people the things that they really should be living into? Did, were his statements as strong as they should have been? Shouldn't he have been more explicit about his affirmation of women's value? Shouldn't he have been more affirming of the role of children? Shouldn't he have just condemned slavery as a practice rather than trying to confront the slave owners and comfort the slaves? As people of the 21st century, it's easy for us to say yes to those things. Yes, you should have done that. You should have said that slavery is terrible. But he didn't write in the 21st century. He wrote in the first century. And our realities are not his realities. N.T. Wright goes on to say, Paul could not envision a world without slavery any more than we can envision a world without electricity. Though there are degrees of variance to which people in certain cultures treated and valued slaves, the practice was so widespread and universally accepted, it was a social norm. Paul wasn't trying to start the world over from scratch. He was writing into an existence that was already in being. He wasn't trying to design a new way for the world to run, but trying to offer people hope, expectation, and behavior contrary to what the society was offering. That in no way, let me say this, in no way makes his lack of damnation of slavery the right stance. We would never say it's okay for somebody to do something just because they didn't know it was wrong to do it. We would never affirm somebody's stance on a position just because they had not yet learned that their position on that thing was wrong. And so I just suggest that we put ourselves into the frame of mind into which our New Testament writers were writing, into the world they lived in. The problem is, though, for centuries... People saw this text and they read it in a way that said, it's okay, the Bible affirms that slavery is okay and that slaves should obey their masters. For hundreds and hundreds of years, Christians brought this book, this sacred book that we love to the table and said, right here, slaves should obey your masters and that's why we should continue having slavery. And so that's why I say like, we love our texts, we love our Bible, but sometimes it can be misused and sometimes people can use it to mislead. Margaret McDonald does a commentary on Ephesians in this commentary series I have. And she says, in my view, this passage can only speak to a modern context when the interpreter makes it the potentially problematic nature of this text clear and makes every effort to understand the meaning in an early church context, which is what I'm trying to do. It is only then that one might begin to discern the elements of this text that have a timeless voice. It is through that lens through which I'm trying to take us to understand, read, and learn about Ephesians 5. And if we can do that, I know it's tough because we might not agree with this language. I know it's tough because we might really agree with this language and we don't agree with what I'm saying. 
But if we, can, if we can put ourselves into the shoes of the author for a minute, I think that there's one thing in here where I want us to really settle in and finish up our time together this morning. If we can see that the reality into which the New Testament authors are writing is different than our own, we can look and see that this word has a very powerful reality for our lives. I truly believe what I'm about to say next is really the heartbeat of Christianity. The most important thing for us to hear in this entire block of text and this entire scripture is the call to mutuality, to mutuality, to being in relationship with one another. Life is about relationships. In a couple weeks, we're gonna do a four-week series all about our relationships in life, the ways in which we're connected to each other. But we are ontological beings. That's what we are. We are life in relationship to other life. We are people in relationship to other people. We love because God first loved us, and then we show that love to others. We do not hold it in ourselves. We don't say, thanks for your love, God, I'm gonna keep it. That is not what we're called to do. Relationships is the essence of what it means to be a Christian. You cannot be a Christian in isolation. All like kind of the popular ways of being right now that say, you know, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. I believe in God, but I don't go to church. I don't really think you can be a Christian and not be part of the community because all the New Testament is about community. It's about life together. It's about being a people who love one another and serve together and live together. And so for, relationship, for life to be true and fullest, we must be in relationship with others. And the fullest way to do that, the most holy form of relationships is relationships where there's mutuality, where there is not power oppressing others, where there is not people manipulating on behalf of themselves. There has to be love, genuine love, that says that I care about this other person. Richard Rohr in The Divine Dance said, sin is the denial of mutuality. In essence, if all of life is lived through relationship, if everything we are is in and through the relationships we have with God, self, and others, the ways in which we sin is when we break mutuality, when we put our concerns above the well-being of others. That is what leads to sin. It's not just this individual thing that affects us in our relationship with ourselves. Sin affects the people in our lives, it affects our relationship with our family, our friends, and most importantly, our relationship with God. Love is one of the central themes of Ephesians throughout the entire book. And even though it's harder to see here in this text, I still believe that that is what the author hopes to convey. In attempting to add value to those who have less value, he's trying to show a way that people who have a disparity within their relationship can be drawn to mutuality. He does this by giving instructions to fathers that is also good for their children. He does this by telling slave masters not to punish their slaves. But the most expansive part was that first part about marriage. He talks to the husbands and he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. I think, you know, there's two trends with this block of text, with these verses. The first is sometimes we leave out verse 21 entirely. I've heard this text read at weddings a lot of times. I've heard it read in Bible studies. I've heard it read in my, like, when people were you know, doing like the, um, you know, love can wait rallies when I was in high school. It was always, you know, this, these verses were part of it. But I feel like we left out verse 21 a lot and just started with verse 22. But verse 21 says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Verse 25 through 27, when we look at it seriously, it gives us a very different view than the traditional the husband then tells the wife what to do 
and the wife submits to the husband in all decisions because he is the head of the household. So whatever he says goes and she just has to submit herself. I don't know that that's the reality this text is speaking into us, even though that's the way it's traditionally been read. If we read it, if you think about it, if you look at it, you would typically expect in this time period to hear household code that said, wives submit to your husband and husbands rule your wife. Yet what Ephesians offers us is wives submit yourselves to your husbands and then it goes on to say, Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. The prevailing language in this sentiment is to act in the way that Christ did towards his bride, the church. And if we think about that seriously for just one second, we have to ask ourselves, what are the things Christ did for the church? He loved the church. He nurtured the church. He humbled himself for the church. He put the church's needs before his own. He died for the church. He sacrificed everything for the one he loved. Husbands, can we say, is that how we treat our wives? Jesus put the well-being of the church before everything else. His career was not more important than his bride. His fame was not more important than his bride. His possessions, his perception, his time, his weekends at the hunting camp, the fishing trips, the boys' nights, his Netflix shows, none of those things were more important than his bride. With Christ and the church, there was no, let me do my thing, and then I'll take care of you. There was no, I know you want me to spend time with you, but I've got something else I've gotta do first. Christ put the church before all. And so if we read this text and say, well, clearly it says that the husband is in charge, and so he gets to make all the decisions and do whatever he wants. I don't think that's a faithful reading of Ephesians chapter five. I think Ephesians chapter five draws us into a relationship of mutuality with those whom we love. It brings us to a place like Jesus. The church became the bride of Christ, not because it was dragged off unwillingly by a masculine marriage partner with a ruling fist, but because he gave himself totally and utterly for her. Is that how we live our lives? Is that how we live our lives for our spouses? And this calling of mutuality didn't stop at the marriage. It went on to children. Is that how we live our lives with our children? Are we in a mutual relationship with them to where we put their needs, the things of their life, the love we have for them before our own? And even further than that, the calling of Christ. Is Christ died for the church? And guess who's part of the church? Ephesians made that very clear in the beginning. Everybody, no longer slave, no longer Jews or Greeks, but the in Christ we are all united. So Christ united in the church all people. And so guess who Christ put before himself? All others. Is that how we live our lives? Is that the calling of mutuality that we believe in, that we affirm, that we want to be? It is for me, but I gotta be honest. I fail a lot. There are plenty of times I put things before my bride. There are plenty of times I put things before you, my family. And every day I put something before God. And so I ask for your forgiveness. Because I love you. I love you. And I want to be in relationship with you in the most holy of ways. 
I want to honor you. I want, you to put, I want to put you before myself. I want to put nothing, no idol, no possession, no thing before God. And I ask that you help me to do that. And I'm going to help you to do that. And I think that's the reading we can take from Ephesians chapter five. That through the love we have for God and one another, we are called into holy living and holy relationships. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for the conviction that you lay on our lives. We thank you for the hard realities that we have to sit with. We thank you that we um, can be offended, that we can be disturbed, that we can be uncomfortable, yet still be in community and still be with those whom we love. We have failed to be an obedient church. We have failed to do your will. We have not heard the cries of others. We have not heard the cries of the needy. Forgive us, we pray. Free us for joyful obedience to you, our Lord. You are our God, and we are your people. And together we say, amen.